0: You know, all of you here, Newspringers, know this already, but if you're not a Newspringer, if you're new to Newspring, I hope you know something about us. Here at Newspring, it's not what we want from you, it's what we want for you. And, and I hope you understand we, it's not that we want your money, and we'd love for you to become a Newspringer, but that's not the most important thing for us. At Newspring, what, what keeps us going and what gets us up in the morning is we want you to know God. We want you to truly know God. So many people have ideas about God that they picked up, sort of as a solid bar way of thinking. They pick up a little bit of God from the culture. They pick up a little bit of God from their friends. And for many of us, we picked up some ideas about God in religion. But at the end of the day, it's sort of this composite idea about God. And at the end end of the day, it's not a real idea of God. It's It's a caricature. So here at New Spring, we want you to truly know God and to be connected with him. And in those odd ideas that I hear vocalized about God, one of the ideas that I hear is the idea that God doesn't judge anybody. And that's very popular in 21st century America. Now, it's true that you and I shouldn't judge someone. But I do hear from time to time, well, I just don't believe that God judges anybody. If you ever open the Scriptures, the one thing you'll discover over and over again is that God is judge and God will judge And I'd like to just take a few moments to share with you, to cherry pick some of the texts from Scripture about God's judgment of us that give us insights into various aspects of that judgment. For instance, in Psalm 50, verse 6, the Bible tells us the basis of that judgment. The Bible says, and let the heavens proclaim his justice, for God himself will be the judge. So I know the basis of that judgment. Whenever the judgment takes place, the basis will be pure justice. A lot of New Springers are, are, are involved in the justice system, either in law enforcement or your attorneys, your officers of the court, judges, and, and you know and I know that we don't have perfect justice in this world, although I will say one thing, we're blessed here in Wichita and in Kansas to have as final, final justice system as I've seen anywhere in the world. But even at our best, we know that it isn't perfect justice. But God is omniscient, and he knows everything. So whenever the judgment takes place in God's court, the basis will be perfect justice. And it will be a justice based on the fact that God knows everything about everyone. Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give a personal account. So now I know the basis of that judgment is justice, and on top of that, each one of us, it's not going to be a class action suit, each one of us are going to stand before God. Every man, every woman is going to go one-on-one with God, and the Bible says we will give a personal account for our lives. Well, the basis is judgment. Each one of us will be there. And then the next verse that I find, the Bible says, and Jesus gave this himself, that the extent to which this judgment is going to go is, is, very, is very focused and very precise. Scripture says you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word. Now think how, how deep, how, uh, how far-reaching this judgment is to go to, to just our offhand comments. Man, I'm scared for just the offhand comments I've made in sermons through the years. So I know now the basis is justice. Each one of us, including myself, is going to have to give an account. This judgment is so thorough that it goes to every idle word. And then what really terrifies me, in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, the Bible calls it the day when God will judge men's secrets. Well, you and I tend to judge each other based, I mean, even though we shouldn't, we, we do tend to evaluate each other. We do so based on what we know about people. But at the end of the day, I'm going to guess something about the 6,000 people who attend New Spring this weekend, I'm going to guess that all of us have secrets. Do you have secrets? Do I have, do I have secrets? Are there things about my life that I've never told anybody? I'm guessing there are, and there are secrets in your life. So now we know that there will be a judgment. The basis will be justice. Each of us is going to give an account. We won't do it in a group. Beyond that, it's so thorough that even our idle words are going to be examined. And then the secrets are going to come out in this day of judgment. Now, suppose God suspended life as we know it, and he will someday. There will be a day when God just suspends life. Now, that's a simplistic statement. It'll happen over a period of seven years. But there will be a time when God basically punches the, the clock, and life will be suspended, and we will stand before him. Now, my question for you is, I asked the question of myself, You ready for that? You ready for that to happen next week? I mean, if if next week it was your time to come up before God, as we all shall, and the basis is justice, and each of us will give an account to the extent of every idle word that we say, and all our secrets are coming out, the stuff we've never told anybody, would you be ready for that moment? I'm going to be honest with you. That's a scary thought for me. I'm telling you, you need to know God. It's very, very important for you and me, That you know God. Whether you ever get a PhD or not, you need to know God. Whether you ever get a million dollars or not, you need to know God. Whether Whether you ever know the beautiful and powerful people, you need to know God. It is critical that you and I know God. Well, how would you know God? Let's be honest about that. How would you come to know an invisible God? How would you even begin to know God? Well, the Bible tells us there are several ways in which human beings have the opportunity to know God. And this is the first opportunity. I'm going to start with the broadest. The scripture tells us in the book of Psalms 19 that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. So what the Bible tells us is for all peoples in all situations, in all language, in all cultures, All over the world, all of us are privy to some knowledge about God because nature tells a story. And in nature's story, we see the glory of God. That means the greatness of God. We see the craftsmanship of God. And the Bible says that nature continues to tell the story every day and every night. I am going to go to sensitive ground here. I'm not really sure there is such a thing as a pure atheist. I have friends who are atheists, and so I'm cautious in even saying that. But in the classical definition of the term, I'm not really sure that there is such a thing as an atheist. Agnostics who don't know, yes. Seekers who are on a journey to discover God, absolutely. Ignores people who know there's a God but pretend there isn't a God, yeah. But I think, I question whether or not there really is a person who fully believes in every fiber of his being that there is no God. And I have atheist friends who attend New Spring, so if you're here today and you're an atheist, you know, please, don't get, please don't be offended at me. I promise you, I won't be offended if, for you questioning the existence of God if you won't be offended at me for questioning whether or not there's such a thing as an atheist. Let's just agree to disagree for a few moments. Nature says... God exists. You and I live in a culture where the predominant prevailing story is that all living things as we know it are the product of bottom-up education or information, bottom-up intelligence. And really, when you get right down to it, it's the, product, it's the production of accident. Several years ago, there were those who began to to espouse a broad school of thought, and that school of thought was called intelligent design. And in those who subscribe to intelligent design... There were the ideas that there is the true God, the Jehovah God of the Bible. There were those who said we don't, we believe in there, you know, we believe in a system of gods. We think maybe aliens did it, but basically what they were saying is we look at nature, it's just too complex, it's too interrelated, the systems are too functional. We just cannot believe as we look at nature that there was no intelligence at the very beginning. And so intelligent design for a brief time got a little bit of light of day, but after a while it was like. Everybody in the intelligentsia clamped down on that and said, no, intelligent design is just another way of suggesting that there is a God and it's trying to slip under the curtain. In 2005, there was a statement released by 38 Nobel laureates. And I think you should hear it. Because these Nobel laureates were ripping intelligent design. And I want you to listen to the exact verbiage with which they ripped it. They said intelligent design is fundamentally unscientific it cannot be tested as scientific theory because its central conclusion is based on the belief in the intervention of a supernatural agent in other words The idea of God can never be scientific because you cannot test the first cause if that cause is supernatural. It is as if the question has been set up so that God can never be the answer. That's the kind of stuff that religion is accused of. No wonder when Americans were polled as to what they believe about origins... The Huffington Post, which, by the way, is not necessarily an evangelical organ. The Huffington Post revealed that 46% of Americans in 2012, 46% of Americans believe in creationism. 32% believe in theistic evolution, which means they believe in evolutionary processes. They just believe that God got it started. Only 15% of Americans in 2012 believe in evolution without any divine intervention. And it's freaking a lot of people out. I read an article in the New York Times where the New York Times is just saying we cannot understand in this enlightened age why only 15% of Americans, after all the evidence has been laid on the table, how can 85% of Americans not believe in secular, bottom-up intelligence evolution? And they offered several ideas, but I could help the writers of the New York times great lady see here's the one thing that people on the secular left never really get i'm an old debater and i can tell you in a debate both sides present evidence Because, you know, they're always saying, well, the evidence has been presented. Why why do people not not believe in in, in atheistic evolution? Well, in a debate, or some of you lawyers could know, in court cases, both sides put on evidence. And I would assure you that 85% of Americans are not Bible-believing Christians. So why is it 85% of Americans believe that God at some point is involved in life as we know it? I will tell you simply this. It is because after we have heard the evidence, and Lord knows, it's been the only side to get a bat. I mean, I was taught atheistic evolution in public schools in Texas from the time I was in the second grade on. It's been the only team to get a turn at bat. By this time, everybody should believe in atheistic evolution. And it's not that churches have been effective. Lord knows, that's not the answer. It is just because after the frail evidence of bottom-up intelligence evolution has been presented that nature comes in and begins to testify and the evidence that nature pumps into your and my lives. As we learn the sophistication and the interrelationship and the power and the wisdom of creation, we're well cognizant of the fact. And it just doesn't pass the smell test. And please, I promise you, my purpose is not to offend, but I'm not a shrinking violet either. I mean, the Bible simply says all of us are privy to the knowledge of God because nature pumps it out. Nature testifies it. Nature turns the cards over. Nature lays out the existence of God. Not only the existence of God, but the greatness of God and the craftsmanship of God every night and every day. Well, that raises a question. Why is there such a heated conflict? Because all you have to do is just raise the idea that God was involved, even though 85% of Americans believe it. All you have to do is just raise the idea that God was involved, and I mean people freak. They get angry. I just wonder why there's so much hostility. I've got friends who believe in flying saucers. I don't agree with them. I think it's kind of cute. I don't get mad at them. The reason why there's so much emotion involved in it is this. Here's the thing. Because it's a slippery slope. And for all of my friends who don't believe in God, for all my friends who believe that, that that we're all a product of no divine intervention evolution, I'm well cognizant of the fact that it's a slippery slope. Because if you ever ask the question, is there a God, and the answer comes back yes, it's the next two questions that are really tough because now I must ask, what kind of God is he, or she, or they? What kind of God is he? And the next question is, how does he feel about me? See, that's the reason why so many can never countenance the existence of God, because it must then take them to the second questions. Well, throughout history, and I find this interesting because even if you look at ancient uncivilized, uh, ancient uncivilized histories, they all came up with ideas about who God was. They imagined God in various ways, but even uncivilized cultures didn't dare suggest that it was the product of an accident. But ancient civilizations came up with ideas on their own. There are two ways for you to pursue the existence of God. You can either do it by imagination, that is trying to figure out God on your own and and projecting that on God, or through revelation, that is God revealing himself to us. And here's where I want to now make the turn and get into our talk today. Throughout the, the millennia, ancient orders have projected ideas upon God, and here's what they've determined. They've determined that if there is a God, he is demanding because they look at the order and precision of nature, he's demanding. Because they don't understand Adam's sin in the fall, they think he's capricious. Because there are so many systems and there's the idea, how could one God do it all? They think that God is multiple. But the one thing about all cultures, if you look at their history, is that when they've proposed ideas about God or gods, there has always been the idea that God has to be appeased. I think it's because the idea that God is so precise, he is so full of order, and we're so full of disorder and dysfunction, we must do something to appease him. Well, Thankfully for us today, we are, we're benefiting not only from nature, but we benefit from revelation because God has revealed himself. God has shown himself to us in two ways. Number one, through information, through scripture, and through incarnation, through his son, Jesus Christ. So when we look at the Bible, we get information about God. When we look at Jesus, we see what God would look like with skin. And Now I want to begin to tell you the story of three fathers very quickly. I want to take you first to a man by the name of Abraham. He lived 4,000 years ago. He is a key figure in history. Three world religions hark back to Abraham. The Jewish religion, Judaism, Islam, and and Christianity per se as a religion hark back to Abraham. He is a key figure. He lives in a place. He lives in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. It is part of a Sumerian culture. And God comes along to Abraham, and he says to him, I want you to leave this culture, and I want you to go on a journey with me, and in this journey, I am going to make you the father and make Sarah the mother of a whole new nation. And then God tested them because for many years they didn't have a child. It's kind of hard to be the father of a great nation if you don't have one child. But, of course, you know the story if you've, read, if you've read the book of Genesis. You know that God did not let them have a child until later years. And you've heard, I'm sure, that Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. But you need to understand that people were living just a little bit longer back during those times. And so I'm going to scale it back and say, by modern standards, we could say that Abraham was like about 60 and Sarah was like about 50. Now, that's still a miracle, and it's still an unusual thing because some of you who are in your 50s and 60s, if you have a positive pregnancy test, it would change your week. And your retirement plans. <laughs> but finally, God allows Abraham and, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah to have a son. His name is Isaac. Now, some of us have had children in later years. And you know that when you do, it's a special thing because you have a few years on you and you have a little bit of maturity that you didn't have perhaps when your other children or if you didn't have children before. You've got more maturity now and and you just sort of tend in a special way to focus on the relationship with that child. And so I'm sure that for Abraham and Sarah, since he was their only child, loved Isaac, and he was the center of their world. And one day God comes along and he says what must have felt unthinkable. I know for you and me, as we've read the book of Genesis, you know we're just kind of like going right along, and all of a sudden we hit chapter 22, and it's like, what? Because God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. God asking somebody to offer a human sacrifice? Well, there are a couple of things that you and I need to know, because if you don't know these two things, we can look at this chapter, and it looks like God put Abraham through a horrific experience. But there are two things that are seminal here for us to understand. One is Abraham was part of the Sumerian culture. He was familiar with this kind of thing. All the gods in the Sumerian culture required this kind of thing. So for a brief moment, God is seeming to behave like all the gods, small g, of Abraham's world. Did you know in Abraham's culture in the Ur of Chaldees, when an important person died, he took a lot of people with him? His wife, servants, because after all, he was going to need them in the afterlife. So they, they drank poison. For years, archaeologists and historians thought the people of this culture drank poison in order to die. But now recent archaeological digs are revealing that these people were impelled. So when God came along to Abraham and said, hey, I want you to take your only son and offer him as a sacrifice, for one brief moment, God is behaving, seeming to behave like all the gods in Abraham's culture. The second thing you need to know is by this time, Abraham knows God well enough to know that Isaac is not going to die. He's well aware of that. He doesn't know what God is up to. He's not exactly sure what God's into right now. But not for a moment does he question that Isaac is going to die. And you can read this because in Genesis 22, verse 4, he's on the way with his servants to the place where God has asked him to sacrifice Isaac. So finally he gets to the mountain, sees the place in the distance. And he says to his servants in verse 5, Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants, The boy and I, and in Hebrew this is really interesting because it's just like saying the two of us, the boy and I, Isaac and I. I mean, it's just as definitive as it can possibly be. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there. And then the boy and I, Isaac and I, the two of us will come back to you. I don't know what Abraham understands at this point, but I'm, I'm well aware of the fact that Abraham is cognizant. Isaac is not going to die. He just knows God too well. He doesn't know what God is up to. He just knows Isaac is not going to die. Now, here is where we begin to understand grace. Look at Genesis 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself, Abraham, carried the fire on the knife, and the knife. And the two of them went up together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father, and he's been through this before. Isaac is saying, Dad, we're missing something here. I mean, we're going to offer sacrifice. I see you got the fire, you got the knife. Where's the sacrifice? Now look at Abraham's answer. God. Now, we're, we, we don't have the Hebrew word translation here, or we have a translation, but we don't have the actual Hebrew. What he is saying is God by himself will provide the lamb. He didn't say you are going to provide the lamb. He didn't say you and God are going to provide the lamb. He didn't say I and God are, are going to provide the lamb. He is saying God by himself will provide the lamb. And that's exactly what happened. If you look in the next few verses, the Bible says the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns, or by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So he called the place the Lord will provide. Now, guys, we now are to the very definition of grace. I grew up in in church. Some of you had that experience. And I have heard grace talked about all my life, but i found two fundamental flawed definitions of grace. And one is that grace just means God is easy. He is the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky. He is the one who says, y'all play nice now and do the best you can, and everybody gets a trophy at the end. I mean, this is the idea of God. He is just sort of Uncle Sugar, that anything you do is fine. That is grace. That is a fundamentally, fatally, cosmically flawed definition of grace. There is another definition of grace that goes to the other extreme, and they talk about grace, but with the way they talk about it, it doesn't sound like grace. It's like, yeah, God gives grace, but you got to do this to get the grace, and then once you get the grace and you have to do this to keep the grace, and it sounds like I still have to do a whole lot to have it. So on one hand, I get this, I get this right. Uncle Sugar definition of grace. On the other hand, I get this bait-and-switch definition of grace. You and I just had a look at what grace is. See, God... We saw from the judgment God's expectations are high. God expects and demands perfection just as God demanded Abraham bring Isaac. He demands that we bring perfection, which is why he's going to judge every word. This is why he's going to judge every secret. This is why each of us are going to have to go one-on-one with God because God's demands are perfection. But he knows we can't bring it. We read in Psalm 103, verse 14, he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. David would say in 130, verse 3, if you were to keep track of sins, O Lord, who could stand before you? See, here is the thing, and this is what we must grasp. God cannot change his requirements. He can't say, okay, Mark, I tell you what, I know you can't hack perfection, but I just bring 60%. He can't do that. Because at the moment that God required less than perfection, he's no longer God. He cannot violate himself. He cannot compromise himself. You and I can. We're flawed humans. But God cannot compromise. He must have perfect justice. But on the other hand, he knows I'm not capable of standing before that. So what does God do? What does God do with requirements that can't be changed and people who can't meet those requirements? Are you ready for this? He provides What he requires. He provides what he requires. Did you hear what Abraham said to Isaac? God by himself will provide the lamb. You and I cannot answer for everywhere. We cannot answer for every secret. God knows that. But there must be an answering for it. And so what God does is God's requirements do not change, but he supplies an answer that you and I cannot supply. He provides what he requires. Let me take you to another father now who will go up on a mountain with his son. And this son, too, will carry wood on his back. And this time there will be no sacrifice caught in the thorns. This time there will be no substitute. This time the father will give his son. This time the father will pay the price. The father is God and the son is Jesus. Because when God wanted to provide what he required, there was only one person who could live a life good enough and that person was sitting on a throne. When he went looking for somebody who would be willing to give, a, give that goodness and lay down on a cross, the only person he could find was on a, was on a throne. And so God sent his son Jesus into the world. And yeah, Jesus was human. Don't get the idea that it, the cross was just easy for him because he prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And so he went through this horrible thing. The Bible says they, they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called the place of the skull. And there they nailed him to a cross. Do we understand? Do we understand? that accomplished? I mean, it's not just, I mean, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday and Easter. I mean, it's not just a cute thing that Christians do in a seasonal kind of way. No, no, no. A transaction took place that day. A transaction because people like you and me, who are going to have to go one-on-one with God and give an account for every secret and every idle word, it's so important to us because when we read Isaiah 53, the Bible tells us what, was ha- what happened there. It says he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's past to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You see, here's the wonderful thing. When I think about answering for those secrets, it was like all my secrets were put on Jesus. All my words were put on Jesus. All those horrible things that I've done were put on Jesus. All the stuff that I can't answer for were placed on Jesus. Well, how does God look at that? Well, the Bible says this. When he, that's God the Father, sees all that's accomplished by his Jesus anguish, he will be satisfied. In other words, he's not going to punish Jesus and punish you too. That would be double jeopardy. And I love this. And because of his experience, that's Jesus on the cross, because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible. See, that's the deal. When I think about answering before God, it's like I'm, so, I'm not just dead, I'm so dead. I, I, it's not possible for me to stand before God if all my secrets are going to be judged. It's not possible for me to stand before God if every word's going to be judged. But what Jesus did was he made it possible for me not to be righteous, but the Bible says to be counted righteous because he will bear all their sins. He will pay all their bill. See, grace is God provides what He requires. God provides per- requires perfection from me, but then He provided it for me with His Son Jesus Christ. And someday I will stand before God, and God will call my name. And I will stand there before him, and God will open the books, and he'll say, okay, now let's get to Mark's words, and Jesus will step forward and say, Father, I've taken care of that. Well, then let's go to Mark's secrets. Well, I've taken care of that too. Well, let's go to Mark's sins. Well, I've, take, I've already, I've, I've already borne those. You see? You see what I'm saying? You need to know God. Because without Jesus, you're on your own well, I've got my religion. you still on your own. I wanted to understand how grace works because I do think there is a part of us that can look at that and say, okay, that is theoretical, but how do I leverage it? How, do, how does it come to my life? How does grace look in my life? Because here is the thing. Any interaction that you have with God will always be God. Re- God always provides whatever is required from, from you. God, prov- God, God provides what he requires. God provides for you what life requires. We're going to talk about that in a talk. And eventually when you get to the point of death, God will, God will provide for you what death requires from you. Any interaction with God is grace because God, that's, that's, that's who God is. How does it look? Because I'm guessing today that I might be talking to a few other people who are flawed like me. And you could ask yourself, how does a person who's had my attitudes, how does a person who's lived my life, how does a person like me leverage grace? And what would it look like if I came to God? Very quickly, I want to take you now to a third father. We don't know his name. Jesus doesn't tell us. It might have been a real story. It might have been a story Jesus invented just to help us understand God. But he tells the story of a dad who had two boys. And the younger son said what is the key to all of us going our own way. He said, I want. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want my share right now. And the father gave him a third of his wealth. And the boy went as far away as he could get from his father. And he blew it all. Now, they say that people who win the lottery a lot of times are bankrupt in two years. He blew everything. Easy money, easy in, easy out. He spent the money on hookers and parties. You know, he had friends because he was shelling it out. He had an entourage. He had to bling. But he lost all the bling, lost all the friends, and blew through the money. Didn't know how to do anything. the only job he could get was feeding hogs. And I fed hogs a few times on my grandfather's farm. It's not the best job to have. Especially for a boy who grew up on the lives of the rich and famous. He grew up in the biggest house in town. He grew up with the best clothes. And here he is. He doesn't have any clothes now except the stuff he gets as people's cast offs He stinks. He smells filthy. And he's so hungry that at some point he is about to eat what the hogs are eating because he doesn't have anything else to eat. And in Jesus' story, that's a picture of you and me when we go our own way. Can you think of a better one? But there came a day when the boy with nothing to give said, I'm going home. I will go to my father, he said. I will go home and say, I've sinned. Well, that's a pretty strong statement because most Americans can't get to that place anymore. It's like, well, how dare you tell me what I do is wrong? Or, well, it's somebody else's fault. But the boy said, I'm going to go home and say, I've sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he goes home. Of course, the father sees him a long way off and runs and hugs him. And the boy says, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Now, guys, as I said, I've been communicating for 40 years. And I've preached thousands of messages. And I wouldn't be surprised if the most often message I've preached in those 40 years was the story of the prodigal son. But somehow I missed the main point until I was getting ready for this message. I don't think I ever understood it. Because the boy came home, he thought the dad would just make him a slave or a servant or maybe kick him off the property. But the father said, my son has come home. We should have a barbecue. We should have a party. We should, we should have a, a, an ox. We should have a steer slain. And the boy said, well, dad, I don't have any food. I'm about ready to eat with the hogs, and the father said, bring the steer out of my pen." And the father said, a son of mine should have a signet ring to show that he is part of this family. And the boy said, but dad, I hawk that. And the father said, well, go get one, one of mine out of my jewelry box. And the father looked at the son and said, a son of mine should have a regal robe and part of my family. He should be dressed in the finest. But the boy said, look at me, dad. I, I've gone through all my clothes. All I've got is these castoffs. And the father said, go to my closet and get one of my robes and bring it out for him. That, ladies and gentlemen, is grace. Because you and I, all of us have gone our own way and we've come back empty and we come to God and we say God I'm empty. What we don't understand is that is exactly what he is looking for because until we come back empty he cannot provide what he requires. And then he says go to my closet and bring out provision for her. Go to my closet and bring out salvation for him. Go to my closet and bring out the strength to live for him. Go to my closet and bring out favor that will carry him through or carry her through life's difficult moments because what life Requires, God provides. That is the classical definition of grace. Now I've got, I've, I've preached a straight up message. I've got a straight up question for you. I'm going to ask you, have you ever received God's grace? I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you're a good person. I think we've already figured out the answer to both those things. Have you received God's grace? If, you're, if you don't know for sure that you have a relationship with God, that you know God, you can know him right now. You, just, you can just reach out to him like the son reached out to the father. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that you can pray, and God will hear your prayer. You ready? Let's pray together. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't save myself, but I believe you, re- you provide what you require. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. I give you my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I know you prayed that quickly. I have a gift for you. I know we're going to be congested in a moment, but please don't leave without getting this. If you look at your Talk To Us card, you can check the box, I Pray With Mark. I have a gift. It's got a DVD. It's got a book and a coupon for a new Bible. Please come by guest services and get this. I promise you, you won't be hassled or stalked or anything. We just want to give you this. Would you stand together with Jake? I want us to just sing this as we go out today. It are